Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 19. We hope you found some of the material from Roshcast on the in-training exam and were able to grab a few extra points. Let's keep it going with more fresh material to help you stay sharp for next year while also improving your clinical skills and patient care. Let's get started with the trauma rapid review. What are the nexus criteria? The nexus criteria are used to rule out the need for cervical spine imaging. The criteria have great sensitivity but poor specificity. To remember the criteria, remember the mnemonic NSAID, neurologic deficit, spinal tenderness, altered mental status, intoxication, and distracting injury. How can you identify a pneumothorax on bedside ultrasound? Well, for a pneumothorax on ultrasound, you would see an absence of lung sliding. Great. And how does the treatment for a simple and complex pneumothorax differ? A simple pneumothorax, which is one involving less than 10% of the hemithorax, can be treated with a non-rebreather. Larger pneumothoraces will often require a chest tube or a pigtail. All right, and last rapid review here. What is the classic sign of a myocardial contusion after blunt chest trauma, and what's the most serious complication? This is a trick question since there's no classic sign, but the most common finding on EKG is sinus tachycardia. Although the most common course is spontaneous resolution of the symptoms, with severe injuries, the most serious complication will be delayed rupture. Great. I'm going to take us through the first question and the new material. A 55-year-old man who is taking several antihypertensive medications presents to the ED with nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, and a rash after eating Thai food about an hour ago. The symptoms began within seconds of his first bite. Despite the patient being administered two doses of intramuscular epinephrine, diphenhydramine, dexamethasone, and crystalloid fluids, his blood pressure remains 75 over 38. What other medication should be considered in this patient? Is it A, cimetidine? B, glucagon, C, norepinephrine, or D, octreotide. Tough one here. The correct answer has to be choice B, though, glucagon. The first step to getting this question correct is to figure out what exactly is going on here. This patient developed vomiting, shortness of breath, and a rash immediately after eating a bite of Thai food. It sounds like he's having an anaphylactic reaction to peanuts. Another clue here is that he received the classic anaphylactic cocktail, epinephrine, steroids, an H1 blocker, and IV fluids, but he remained hypotensive. Since he's on several antihypertensives, I suspect he's on a beta blocker, which is preventing him from mounting a compensatory tachycardia to normalize his blood pressure. Great logic. And the other answer choices here are also just not that great. While cimetidine is an antihistamine, the patient's symptoms are refractory to diphenhydramine. Cimetidine is unlikely to provide additional benefit. Norepinephrine also wouldn't be that useful as it binds the same receptors that epinephrine binds, which still remain blocked by the presumed beta blocker. And lastly, octreotide, it does have a role in refractory hypoglycemia caused by sulfonylurea-induced hypoglycemia, but it has no role in this case. Exactly. Although potentially life-saving in this case, don't forget that glucagon has quite a few side effects as well. These include vomiting, dizziness, hypokalemia, hyperglycemia, hypertension, and tachycardia. Yeah, definitely not a benign intervention. Why don't you load up the next question for us? A 45-year-old woman with type 1 diabetes presents with fatigue in the setting of medication noncompliance. Her labs reveal a sodium of 125, potassium of 3.1, chloride of 97, bicarbonate of 10, glucose of 761, and pH of 7.21. She started on IV fluids. What therapy is most important to start next? Is it A, hypertonic saline, B, potassium repletion, C, regular insulin, or D, sodium bicarbonate? So the patient here has a metabolic acidosis with an anion gap of 18 in the setting of hyperglycemia. This must be DKA. In this case, the answer is choice B, potassium repletion. Exactly. Although insulin will be an important component of her therapy, electrolyte repletion takes precedence. 
In general, you don't want to start insulin therapy until the potassium is greater than 3.5. And the patient here had a potassium of 3.1, so you need to replete it before you start insulin therapy. And while we're on the topic, do you know what the most common causes of mortality in DKA in children and adults are? Mortality in children is related to cerebral edema. Mortality in adults is usually from sepsis, which often precipitated the DKA, or from cardiopulmonary complications of DKA. I'm sure we'll touch on cerebral edema in a later episode, but for now, let's go on to a question requested by a listener. Thanks, Mega, for the tip. A 56-year-old woman with a known left bundle branch block presents after a syncopal episode. Her EKG shows a regular wide complex tachycardia with a rate of 160 beats per minute. Which of the following EKG features suggests a diagnosis of ventricular tachycardia over a diagnosis of supraventricular tachycardia with aberrancy? Is it A, absence of AV dissociation, B, capture infusion beats, C, irregular rhythm, or D, QRS duration less than 110 milliseconds? Tough question. I would have no idea if we hadn't touched on this in episode two, but the answer here is choice B, capture infusion beats. Ventricular tachycardia is defined as depolarizations emanating from an ectopic ventricular focus at a rate of greater than 100 beats per minute. It most commonly occurs due to ischemic heart disease and acute MIs. It can also be caused by cardiomyopathy, valvular disease, electrolyte abnormalities, especially hyperkalemia, and drug toxicities. It's admittedly very difficult to differentiate VT from SVT with an underlying bundle branch bonk, aka SVT with aberrancy. There are a few classic findings that point you to the diagnosis of VT, such as the answer to this question, capture beats and fusion beats. Let me stop you there to go over capture beats and fusion beats. Remember that a capture beat is a regular narrow complex supraventricular beat in a run of ventricular tachycardia. A fusion beat results when a supraventricular and a ventricular impulse combine to create a hybrid complex. And both of these findings point to VT. The other answer choices are tempting, but they're not really as good. Answer choice A, the absence of AV dissociation, is wrong because AV dissociation is characteristic of SVT with aberrancy. Answer choice C, in a regular rhythm, is seen in both VT and SVT with aberrancy. And lastly, a QRS duration less than 110 milliseconds, that's incorrect because narrow QRS complexes is suggestive of SVT, not VT. Nice. And remember, you can write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank to let us know that you want us to cover a certain question on the podcast. You're up next. A 74-year-old woman with a history of congestive heart failure, hypertension, and coronary artery disease presents with confusion, abdominal pain, and nausea. Her medications include hydrochlorothiazide, aspirin, and digoxin. The patient's EKG has scooped ST segments and PR prolongation. She has a potassium of 6.3. Which of the following treatments should be initiated? Is it A, activated charcoal, B, calcium gluconate infusion, C, digoxin-specific antibody, or D, hemodialysis? The answer here is definitely choice C, digoxin-specific antibody. Exactly. This patient likely has digoxin toxicity and should be given digoxin-specific antibody as quickly as possible. We know this because of her presentation, not because of her EKG findings. The presence of scooped ST segments and PR prolongation merely indicate that she is taking digoxin, not that she's having digoxin toxicity. These EKG findings are often referred to as the Salvador Dali mustache. And remember that digoxin toxicity can cause almost any type of dysrhythmia. The most common EKG finding in digoxin toxicity is actually just a PVC. The elevated potassium in this question also has important implications. Why don't you walk us through that part too, Jeff? Sure. In patients with digoxin overdoses, the serum potassium level is actually a key predictor of mortality. If the potassium is less than 5, almost all the patients are going to survive. Before the advent of the DIG-specific antibody, 
Patients with potassium levels of 5 to 5.5 had a 50% mortality. Those with the potassium over 5.5 almost always died. Now, thankfully, there's an antidote. In an acute overdose, those with an elevated digoxin level of 10 to 15 nanograms, a serum potassium of greater than 5, or in the presence of severe conduction disturbances, they should be given a digoxin-specific antibody. In chronic overdoses, the serum DIG concentrations are often lower, and the decision to give a DIG-specific antibody is based on the presence or absence of conduction abnormalities in serum potassium. Nice review. I'll run through the other answer choices here. Charcoal shouldn't be given because although it does absorb digoxin, this patient already has altered mental status and is therefore at an aspiration risk. Charcoal can help if the patient presents within one hour of ingestion. Calcium has been thought to lead to a stone heart or cardiac standstill in the setting of digoxin overdose. And dialysis is ineffective because of the large tissue distribution of digoxin. Great points. Moving on to the next question. An 18-year-old woman falls while rock climbing and sustains a knee dislocation. Posterior tibial and dorsalis pedis pulses are unable to be palpated on the affected side. Her last meal was two hours ago. Which of the following statements is true regarding pre-procedural fasting? Is it A, current fasting guidelines are based on results of randomized control trials comparing fasting statuses and incidence of aspiration? B, she is at an increased risk of complications from the knee dislocation and reduction should be performed regardless of the fasting status. C, she should wait an additional four hours until it is six hours since her last meal, since she is at risk of aspiration. Or D, vomiting and loss of airway reflexes during procedural sedation is common. The answer here is choice B. Emergent procedures requiring procedural sedation should not be delayed to allow time for fasting. This patient has lost pulses and is having a vascular emergency. Reduction facilitated by procedural sedation should be performed immediately. This is a very common misconception. There are actually no outcome-related studies which show a correlation between fasting status and increased risk of adverse events like emesis, aspiration, or other airway events. It's important to note that while we are certainly not anesthesiologists, the current ASA guidelines do recommend a two-hour period after ingestion of clear liquids and a six-hour period after ingestion of solids or other non-clear liquids prior to sedation. But remember that these guidelines come from expert consensus and data extrapolated from patients undergoing general anesthesia, not procedural sedation. Right, and to that same point, answer choice D, vomiting and loss of airway reflexes, that's actually very uncommon during procedural sedation. So I think the take-home point is this. Don't delay sedation for the sake of fasting in emergent situations. All right, last question of the day. A 32-year-old woman, eight weeks pregnant by dates, presents to the ED with a two-centimeter laceration to her index finger sustained while she was cutting a tomato. On review of systems, she also notes two days of vaginal spotting and lower abdominal cramping. Her vitals are normal. Physical exam is consistent with the simple two-centimeter laceration on her finger. The pelvic exam reveals a closed os and no adnexal tenderness or masses. Which of the following statements best describes the next step in management? Is it A, delay treating her laceration until her pregnancy status is further clarified? B, treat her laceration as indicated and perform a beta-HCG quantitative level? C, treat her laceration as indicated, perform a beta-HCG quantitative level and obtain a pelvic ultrasound? Or D, treat her laceration as indicated, then discharge with outpatient obstetric follow-up? Ah yes, the curveball triage complaint. Laceration, but also rule out ectopic pregnancy. The answer here is choice C. Treat the laceration, check a beta-HCG, and perform a pelvic ultrasound. This question highlights the need for a thorough review systems. In addition to caring for the laceration, this patient requires further workup of her pregnancy to make sure she's not having an ectopic. In patients with a positive pregnancy test who haven't already had an ultrasound showing an intrauterine pregnancy, 
Complaints of lower abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding often require a beta-HCG and pelvic ultrasound. And note the choice B, treat the laceration and check a beta-HCG is not enough. All patients need a pelvic sauna regardless of their hormone level. Although it's time-consuming and potentially uncomfortable to perform a pelvic ultrasound, it's absolutely essential here. Undiagnosed ectopic pregnancies are potential surgical emergencies and need to be excluded. And one more quick point before we move on to the rapid review. Don't forget that while you're working up a potential ectopic, counseling patients is important since it's a very, very stressful situation for both the mom and dad. Here are some good points to include while you're talking to them. Up to 20% of all pregnant patients will develop vaginal bleeding within the first 20 weeks of gestation. Of these, 50% will miscarry and the other 50% will go on to a normal term pregnancy. Excellent points to bring up. So that's it for new material. I'll get us started with the rapid review. In hypotensive patients on beta blockers, regardless of the etiology of hypotension, consider giving glucagon for reversal of beta blockade. Thai food is delicious. What? Never, never mind. Common side effects of glucagon are vomiting, dizziness, hypokalemia, hyperglycemia, hypertension, and tachycardia. When treating DKA, repleting potassium takes precedence over starting insulin. Most protocols advocate for a potassium of at least 3.5 before starting insulin. Capture beats and fusion beats are indicative of ventricular tachycardia. Capture beat is a regular narrow complex supraventricular beat conducted within a run of ventricular tachycardia. A fusion beat is a beat formed from a supraventricular and ventricular impulse, resulting in a hybrid QRS complex. Digoxin toxicity can cause confusion, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting, as well as almost any type of dysrhythmia. PVCs are the most common EKG abnormality. The quote Salvador Dali mustache or scooped ST segments seen in patients on digoxin is indicative only of dig use and not dig toxicity. In digoxin overdoses, the potassium levels are helpful in prognosticating survival. A potassium level of greater than 5.5 portends a worse outcome. The treatment is digoxin-specific antibody. Charcoal binds digoxin and can be given in acute overdoses if the patient has a normal mental status. There's no role for hemodialysis. Procedural sedation should not be delayed because the patient is not fasting. There's no good literature to suggest worse outcomes in those not fasting. In any pregnant patient with lower abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding who doesn't yet have a confirmed IUP by ultrasound, a beta-HCG and pelvic ultrasound are required to rule out an ectopic. Up to 20% of all pregnant patients will develop vaginal bleeding within the first 20 weeks of gestation. Of these, 50% will miscarry and the other 50% will go on to have a perfectly normal term pregnancy. All right, so that wraps up episode 19. Thanks for listening. We just launched a new Twitter handle, at Roshcast, so follow us there for updates and more high-yield review. See you next time.